This is Crossroads, a Get Religion podcast. It has been happening in slow motion in the largest member of the Seven Sisters, the mainline Protestant denominations, the United Methodist Church, a split. And it's happening in the smallest of them, the Reformed Church in America, the smallest of all of them, is also undergoing a split. In fact, as of the first of the year, it's now two church bodies, one the Reformed Church in America, the other the Alliance of Reformed Churches. Is this second body actually another denomination or just an alliance, as it says? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So this is happening in the smallest mainline Protestant denomination, the Reformed Church in America. Why the coverage? Well, it could be because of ties to other groups and whether or not this will split. By the way, I was just looking this up. The Seven Sisters of Mainline Protestantism, Seven Sisters is a term sociologists have used for some time, are the United Methodist Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, Presbyterian Church USA, the Episcopal Church, the American Baptist USA, United Church of Christ, and the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. This was one of the first times I've ever heard the Reformed Church of America referred to as a mainline Protestant church. And what's really interesting about that is it grows, it's in a section of the country for the most part, the the Reformed belt, you know, of European immigrants and stuff up there in the upper Midwest. The RCA used to be, when I was growing up, was considered an evangelical church, was considered a more conservative church. And then you had the Christian Reformed Church was to the right of that, but they were both considered quite conservative. And things are going on here. So this is an important story because of one paragraph which which just jumped out at me. Let me see if I can get that up here on my screen really quickly. When you get down about halfway into the story, there's a paragraph that says, other conservative-leaning churches in the RCA, as well as those in the Presbyterian Church in Canada, the Christian Reformed Church in North America, and Presbyterian Church in America are also discerning whether to join the ARC. And of course, the, the ARC is what you just discussed. This is the kind of new body, the Alliance of Reformed Churches. And I immediately wanted to know a lot more about that paragraph, because in the world that I've been covering for years, Christian Reform and PCA, PCA in particular, are considered to be very conservative bodies theologically. And the fact that there might be some churches of what description packing up to go to this Alliance of Reformed Churches, that makes this an even bigger story, especially if this is the first whiff of controversy that might have something to do with significant departures from those groups and maybe fights over their institutions. So the Reformed world is so dang complicated. Years ago, 
when I was at the Charlotte News and then the Charlotte Observer back in the early to mid-1980s was when you had the merger that created the modern Presbyterian Church USA. And I did a story called Presbyterian Alphabet Soup in which I attempted to explain the theological differences between all of the different Presbyterian bodies that could be found just within 50-mile radius of Charlotte. And I don't remember them all by memory, but, you know, there were at least five, six, or seven different Presbyterian denominations. Then you throw in the world of Reformed churches on top of that. This is really complex stuff. And it's it's also interesting to me that if you look, a list that Joe Carter put up, former Get Religionista Joe Carter, put up at the Gospel Coalition had some numbers from 2015. So these are these numbers are pretty old, but when you're dealing with church declines for this long, you know that the trajectories rarely shift. And the fastest shrinking churches in America at that time, and I believe continuing, number one, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ was down over a period of a couple decades from the mid-60s, which is when most of them peaked, they were down 67% a decade ago, and I doubt that has improved much. The Reformed Church in America was down 62%, and the United Church of Christ Congregationalist, an openly liberal and progressive church, was down 52%. And then you would go on down into the more better-known mainline churches from there. One of the things that I wondered about this, is there some evidence that if liberal churches are having trouble, and by that I mean openly liberal churches, the ELCA, the left wing of the United Methodist Church, the Episcopal Church leaps to mind. So maybe what it takes to really blow up a church is to have a denomination that has some vital, growing conservative churches and then put them in tension with elements of the same denomination that are either openly progressive or hinting toward progressive theology and maybe not wanting to admit it very openly. That would seem to be the last couple of decades in Reformed Church in America history to me, and that's very much the case in the Disciples of Christ, where you have some lively growing churches in different parts of the Sun Belt. And then when you get up into the the Acela Belt up in the Northeast and in the Upper Midwest, the churches are extremely progressive and might as well be in the United Church of Christ. So what are the issues? You, you kind of hinted at a couple of them, by in, just simply in terms of progressive. But what are the particular issues that are driving the Reformed part in this case? And I agree, it is super complicated to figure out what theological differences are actually at work here. But some of these don't take a rocket scientist well, I mean, to figure out. Yeah, this is your age-old connection between concepts of biblical authority. If you're in ancient churches or churches that claim ancient roots, then you get into distinctions with church teaching that can go back 2,000 years, and all of it ends up being linked in our day and age to um, the third question in the TMAT trio that you and I have discussed many times, 
which is what is your belief about sex outside of traditional marriage? The TMAT trio, for listeners who have not heard me use that term before, these are three questions that I always ask when I'm probing divisions within Christian bodies. And the questions are, is salvation through Christ alone? Was the resurrection an event in history, a real event in time? And the third one I always ask is, how would you answer the question, is sex outside of marriage a sin? I notice that I I don't get into gay rights or anything in that question, because eventually you're going to face the exact same questions about sex outside of heterosexual marriage as you would face in terms of trying to justify sexual behavior in same-sex unions, in bisexuality or whatever. So yeah, this familiar, familiar issues, and then looming slightly further in the background, but rarely causing splits in these bodies, but it seems to be a factor in some of these, is the ordination of women. And then you get into issues of what's your authority to, whether is it congregational? Do you have a denominational polity that allows firm theological statements, etc.? So I guess what the average news consumer might be wondering is, is this post-denominational? Because for a yes. lot of, I would say 50 years, there has been a large swath of American Christianity that has concluded we're post-denominational. And they, they view people who remained in, in the denominational affiliations as kind of archaic. But there's an interesting phrase used in this story where they said that they're trying to create a body that is defined more by doctrinal connections than denominational connections. And that struck me as fascinating. That's something that I've been watching for years in the world of seminaries. If you looked at Protestant seminaries in general, and let's take the Southern Baptist Convention with its large numbers of seminary students. Let's take that off the table. If you look at the world of Protestantism, some of the most lively and important seminaries are those that do not have a distinct denominational link but they are very clear about where they stand on theology. And this would be like Reformed Theological Seminary, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and until recent years, I think most people, you know, would put, oh, several other of the big seminaries that are from this non-denominational world in that same basket. Well, this is, they're trying to draw up theological statements that are quite detailed on what they agree on and what they disagree on, and they care less about old denominational structures. So I don't think, I wouldn't be surprised if the churches that are heading into this new denomination, this new alliance, and they're big on the word alliance instead of denomination, kind of like the Baptists are a convention, not a denomination. It seems to be that free church polity and the ability of megachurches to kind of be able to do whatever they want, that's a significant part of the story. I wish we had more numbers in this actual story from Religion News Service. I wish we had also the same story might have gone out on the Associated Press. I'll have to look into that. But anyway, 
or a variation on it. I wish we had more numbers in the story about how sharp the decline has been in the RCA. Is it 50%? Is it 62%? Is it worse than that? Has it gotten even worse? Because there's a, a mention in this long and otherwise detailed story that the churches that are leaving, the 43 churches that are on their way out, are a crucial segment of their denomination. I mean, the denomination may have 900 churches. Well, why do these 43 matter? I was looking down in some of the discussion of this story down in the comments, and someone mentioned that these are only 43 congregations, but that they make up more than 10% of the entire denomination's membership. And, as you know, especially right now in COVID, the churches that are large and are paying their denominational bills are crucial to keeping the denomination open for business. So right at the top of this story, in the second paragraph, you have the departure of the theologically conservative congregations to the new group. Leave some who remain in the RCA concerned for the denomination's survival. Before the split, the nearly 400-year-old denomination had fewer than 200,000 members and 1,000 churches. Yeah, so at some point, the ship may go down, and that's the larger issue here. And then you look at some of the colleges that are connected to this, Hope University, you know, and some others. Then if you start thinking about the Christian Reformed Church, if there is actual tensions and signs of churches wanting to leave the Christian Reformed Church, that brings up a huge name in the world of Christian education in America because the CRC is who controls Calvin University and Seminary. So, Terry, the chicken or egg question, is this split being driven by decline? In other words, are these the significant and probably more financially crucial congregations mm -hmm. that are deciding to leave, are they leaving because they see the end of the Reformed Church in America in sight, or is it the other way around? Let me word that a slightly different way. One of the questions we have here is the old question of do theologically conservative churches grow while theologically liberal churches decline? And that would certainly seem to be a pattern that is seen in this particular split. At least that's what's certainly suggested by the statement that these 43 churches are large, they're more important, they're, they play above their weight, you know, that, that they have more clout in the denomination. But I think we also have to say that this is an example of how powerful issues related to LGBTQ rights are in the modern world, and that there simply is no way to, to run away from them. I was thinking in particular as I read this story of, you know, the fact that, like I said, the RCA, when I was a younger reporter, was considered a fairly conservative church or a mainstream evangelical church, and the CRC was considered way to the right of the RCA. Well, now we're hearing about the RCA splitting and the RCA beginning to openly embrace LGBTQ changes, and the ordination of, I assume, non-celibate gays and lesbians, etc. And then also, if you read around, you know that the, the Christian Reformed Church is now 
shifting into that role where they're beginning to feel tension, especially at Calvin University, they're beginning to feel tensions between people who are either pro-LGBTQ rights or, to use a phrase from the communist era, they're anti-anti-gay rights. In other words, these people would say, I'm not pro-gay rights and gay theology, but I'm opposed to the way conservatives are opposing it, the language they're using. I was reminded of a quote from something by a Baptist ethicist who I knew, you know, I had talked to him several times, met him several times, when he was a very conservative professor at Union University here in Tennessee, uh, in West Tennessee, a very conservative Southern Baptist school. And then he left and went to Mercer, which is a Baptist school in Georgia, which has trended more openly liberal. And he wrote an, an amazing piece for RNS in which he said the following. This is a direct quote. It turns out that you are either for an unequivocal social and legal equality for LGBT people, or you are against it. And your answer will at some point be revealed. This is true both for individuals and for institutions. Neutrality is not an option. Neither is polite half-acceptance, nor is avoiding the subject. Hide as you might, the issue will come and find you. A very blunt statement there, and I think you would have to say that the issue came hunting the RCA and finally split it. You would have to say in the United Methodist Church, biblical authority is the bigger issue, but ultimately what was the point on the spear that for 30 to 40 years has been driving that warfare? Well, it was fights over gay rights. What's the issue in the Christian Reformed Church? What are the issues that are really beginning to bubble up there in terms of whether some of their institutions contain people who are quietly pro-gay theology and gay rights? Well, here you go again. It's the same thing. Hide as you might, the issue will come and find you, said David Gushy. And that's really the bigger story behind what's going on here. I want to return to something you mentioned at the outset, and that is the the tantalizing possibility that there are conservative-leaning churches outside the Reformed Church in America yeah. that are thinking about joining this alliance. Since it's an alliance and not a denomination, does that mean that they simply ally themselves with these 42 churches in some way, but remain members of their church body, or does it mean that they leave and join the alliance? Well, I think there's two levels to your question. One, it does appear that, like what's being attempted with the United Methodist Church, it does seem that the RCA, Reformed Church in America, learned from, say, the Episcopal Church Wars and some of the earlier wars, and they have decided not to turn this split into kind of a lawyer employment act. They've created a covenant that allows churches to go without fighting over property, without fighting over pensions for their clergy, etc. So if you avoid battles over legal issues with land, buildings, trust funds, pensions, etc., if you can avoid that, there's no reason why you don't go ahead and leave the denomination 
and openly join with this other alliance. Yet, it, boy, it really does sound, if you read this story, I'd like to know more, that this alliance is almost like a parachurch group as much as it is a denomination. It sounds like Reformed theology wedded to almost a kind of a, um, a Baptist congregational convention structure. I mean, they're going to have a lot of their meetings on Zoom, you know, and the churches are going to be very free to kind of do what they want to do. It really does sound like a move toward the parachurch. So what does that tell you? There seems to me there is an angle for additional follow-up questions when it comes to we're not going to be a denomination as much as we are going to be a parachurch organization, maybe somewhere between parachurch and denomination. Yeah. Once again, the Baptist, the Southern Baptist Convention has always been very, very focused on the fact they are not a denomination. They are a convention. And that's played a huge role, you know, in coverage of the sexual abuse story within the Southern Baptist Convention. They literally don't have a denominational structure that can require churches or regional associations to do anything. Churches, Baptists are free at the local church level, they're free at the association level, they're free at the state level, and they're free at the national level. It's all voluntary, which can make it really hard to knuckle down and try to do something constructive on an issue like sexual abuse by clergy, volunteers, or anything else. I'll tell you what I would really look for. I'm intrigued with that paragraph. This is a big story, the creation of this RCA story. It's going to be important to watch the other RCA churches that haven't voted yet. How many more of them join this new alliance? Boy, but the really important story. The first time you begin hearing about PCA, Presbyterian Church in America congregations, or especially Christian Reform congregations, if you hear them leaving, their structures and going to this new one, that's when you've got to ask, okay, why are you doing this? If it's about doctrine, be very specific. What are the doctrines here? What's going on? At the same time, I, I want to stress, there are some other church bodies in America. The Southern Baptist Convention, for example, has lost some members in the last decade or so to non-denominational Protestantism, independent megachurches, and the Southern Baptists have seen their baptism figures begin to decline. And we've all discussed the fact that the Missouri Synod Lutherans are having some membership issues, not as radical as the ELCA, but there seem to be other trends in our culture that are affecting these numbers, as well as strictly theological debates. And I, I always am in my brain, I flash back to a quote I heard years ago. The Anglican bishops were meeting at Lambeth, and I heard from someone who actually was in this theological circle, a bishop who gave me this quote on the record. And he mentioned they were talking about what the European churches and the American churches wanted to do to, to liberalize things and to be more progressive. And they went on and on and on, and finally an African bishop, you know, from the growing, rapidly growing churches of Africa, he raised his hand for attention, and they all looked at him, and he said, where are your children, and where are your converts? Where are your children, and where are your converts? This is a story we don't ask enough. 
in addition to theology, at some point, can the church just functionally become mainline? Can they stop doing evangelism that lands new members? And also that crucial issue of birth rate. How many children are in your churches? And are your families just basically becoming suburban Americans with their 2.1 children or 1.5 children or whatever the birth rate is now? At some point, where are your children and where are your converts? Becomes a pair of questions that reporters need to ask when dealing with stories of this kind. Finally, with about a minute here, Terry, since the Reformed Church in America is going to become noticeably smaller and doesn't show any signs of returning, and we can apply this to other mainline Protestant denominations, does someone in religion reporting need to be getting ready to write the piece on how denominations finally, and some of these are very old denominations, some of them rather new, how they finally shutter their doors? Yeah, I think that's a coin with two sides. Exactly. How do you close a church? The, I mean, there are numbers that show the Anglican Church of Canada may be empty in about 10 to 15 years, may have lost all of its members. Now, a lot of people don't think that's going to happen, but what would that look like? I think what is more likely is beginning to see some of these small declining denominations begin to share seminaries, share colleges, and eventually we may see some very interesting and strange mainline clusters of shared communion, shared denomination, shared ordination, and what could in effect become new mainline denominations made out of the pieces of the old ones. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.